Welcome to the EQ4 podcast with me, Deborah McPhillamy. In this podcast, we talk about developing emotional intelligence as well as learning about social intelligence, how to handle your emotions in your relationships, in business, and in your life in general. I also talk to other experts in the field and I'll give you some tools, tips, and techniques to help you to be more EQ. Welcome back to the EQ Daily Show. My name is Deborah McPhillamy and my guest today is Saya Pierce-Jones. And Saya is a journalist. She's going to tell us all about herself in a little bit. But I just wanted to say welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Deborah, and thank you for having me. Um, yeah, really great to share ideas and, and, and thoughts and make the world a better place, I guess. Oh, <laughs> I love that. I think, you know, people like us, it's it's all it is, isn't it? There's so many people today that are just saying, let's make the world a better place because at the moment mm. it's in such a mess, now more than ever. Mm. Yeah. That's it. yeah. So you were telling me that you are obviously a journalist, but you had an interesting twist to it. And I think people, you know, when they think about journalism, we don't often think that it's in a specific field, but there's something mm. that you're really interested in. And you were saying that um, very much of you would like to talk about this thing about not re-traumatizing victims because you interview a lot of people who have, who have experienced trauma in their lives. Is that, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, so yeah, part, part of my training as a journalist, um, but like I said, I, th I think these are lessons that can be used in your own home, in your work as a, a social worker. This is something, I mean, this is a key principle for social workers is not to re-traumatize. Yeah. So as a journalist, perhaps we might get called out to the scene of a massive shack fire where people have lost their homes, mm. um, potentially lost family members. And yes, you know, we're there to cover the story. We need to get the information out. It's a story that must be told, but we have questions that need to be answered. And you have to be so aware of how you're asking those questions. So as not to put the person back into the same emotional state yeah. as they were when this terrible thing happened. You're trying to do it in a way that's as least impactful, negatively impactful or harmful to them. So as to not re-traumatize, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you even see on TV sometimes where, you know, something has happened, whether it's a real story or whether it's a um, fake story, like a made up story. And often journalists can be very insensitive. And as you say, re-traumatize people. But I, I do also remember it reminded me of um, many years ago, I did some training with the South African police services and I was training mm -hmm. the members of they were um, crimes against women and children. And one of the things that they realized that the policemen, because they were so shut down to all the trauma and the abuse and the violence and stuff that they were used to working with on a daily basis, mm. they found that rape victims or women that have came from places of abuse, that the South African cops were actually re-traumatizing them because they were so unempathetic, so you know, cut off and, and so mm -hmm. distant. They, they didn't know how to deal with these people. So they had to be trained. So I'm guessing that, you know, it's not just in those circumstances where people don't know how to deal with trauma. So if we look, if we just look at the past, oh, we're in 2020 B, as I like to call it. Um, 
there, people have experienced so much trauma just in the last couple of years, in the last couple of months, um, and something else about the pandemic, specifically the lockdown, uh, all of this time to be introspective, and perhaps you've realized that you yourself had a past trauma that you hadn't come mm. to terms with yet, yeah. and now these things are coming out, and you want to convey this to your loved ones or to your colleagues, um, but sadly, we have this thing called, you know, victim blaming, um, which is a almost very natural thing for humans to do, where we hear about something horrible that's happened, and as a means to kind of justify it, we we the, our first thing is, you know, what was the cause? Where were you know you something happened? You were sexually assaulted. Where were you? What street were you in? What are you wearing? Um, your the tree fell on your car. Why were you parked under a tree? You know, we're, we're naturally trying to reason and find these, these answers. So the way that you receive that information as the person that's now telling you about their trauma or you're wanting to speak to them about it, if you're not considerate and very, very cognizant um, about how you're handling that, the person can shut down. They can start yeah. showing you these um, a physical re-traumatization, uh, maybe their speech changes a little bit or they get um, quite teary or shaky. Um, and you're essentially, you're, you're taking them in that calm, well, what should have been a calm state and throwing them right back into whatever trauma that was and making them relive it, yeah. which doesn't help anyone. Why do you think there's this thing with victim blaming? Because, you know, you sometimes forget that it still goes on. I remember back in the day, and I mean, I think it might still happen today. I don't know when it was, if a woman was raped, oh, you know, she was asking for it. She wore a shirt, a short skirt or, oh, she was walking in the street late at night or, you know, she was too provocative. Her, her shirt was too low. Um, and that's something that has been happening for generations already, this whole victim blaming. So mm. why do you think, or where do you think in your opinion, where does that come from? So like I said, it is, you know, whether it's a, a heinous act of, of a sexual violation or, um, you know, you dropped your mug and your mug broke or something like this, it is this instinctual thing um, as human beings, we'd rather try and find the answer or the cause that led to this effect instead of just believing the hard truth, which is that sometimes bad things happen to people that don't deserve them. Yeah. Um, that is that is the, the, the hard truth uh, of that on the one side. Um, and then I think on the other side, going back to the idea of victim blaming for sexual assault survivors, this is a lot, this is the media. Mm. Uh, we talk about framing. So when I do a report about um, an assault um, and there's been, um, you know, one of the men has been arrested, I'm not, I, I, I choose, in, because we know words mean a lot, instead of saying um, a 23-year-old woman is in hospital after she was blah, 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 um, because more often than not, we talk about um, that this thing, you know, there is this person and it, it happened to them instead of talking about the perpetrator and framing it the other way. A 29-year-old man is behind bars after he allegedly did this and this and this. More often than not, we're framing it from the victim's, we're not perspective, but we're thinking that, oh yeah, you know, we're telling the story of what happened to the victim, but we should actually be telling the story of 
who wronged them in the first place, yeah. even if it is for the sake of media uh, objectivity alleged at that point, it's still, you know, it, 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 when there was a car accident and someone's been killed, it's not that someone has been killed, it is that someone's negligence killed someone else, that yeah. this thing didn't just happen to someone, bad things don't just happen necessarily, sometimes it is someone doing the bad things, yeah. and we have to focus on that because there, there's no space for victim blaming. Now we're looking at perpetrator blaming mm. and going, yes, you need to be held accountable for whatever you've done to, to someone else. Yeah. That's so relevant because, you know, just the, the small things and you don't actually realize how much it affects the person, you know, just the, those words, because as you say, just by turning it around, you know, give it the, and it's not even about blaming. It's just speaking the truth you know, expressing mm. the truth in what actually happened, because you even find like with, you know, women who from domestic violence um, and you take your partner to court or, or whatever the case may be, you, the, the victim is the one that has to prove that the person did it to you, you know, you've got to prove it. And, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. And, and I mean, I remember because that's where I come from. That's my background of domestic violence. And, and then it was always a case where people would, as you say, it would be a case of, um, you know, what did you do? Or why didn't you leave him? Or always mm -hmm. like the focus was always on me. Why was the focus on me? Why not on the perpetrator? Yeah, it's the focus is on the victim's actions and not yeah. the perpetrator's actions. Yeah. You were, you were talking about how, um, you know, with training of police and that. I don't know if you've heard of these um, specialized sexual offenses courts. No. So, Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust, an amazing NGO, really, really love them. They have been on a, on a campaign for years trying to get government to establish at least one specialized sexual offenses court in every region. Um, at the moment we have, I think there's one, I'm gonna say one and a half in Cape Town because the one in Kailiche is not specially fitted yet. So essentially these are courts where the, um, the defense attorneys, the prosecutors, the judges themselves, the, um, even the clerks, the, the people handling the, the victims, all of them have undergone intense training so as to mold the justice system in the best way that's not going to re-traumatize the victim that's going to make sure that they're in the right state of mind to give their testimony to eventually then see justice being served and mm. this has to go all the way from the day you go and lay the report at the police to your final uh, testimony in court because sadly so often and rape crisis will tell you you'll have a hundred cases reported a year of the ones that are actually reported and then something like two of those get a successful conviction and a lot of the time if it's not the police that have botched the the evidence most of the time it's that the victim themselves loses the capacity because of all of these hurdles being pushed mm. over them police asking questions that seem to imply shame um as i said the mishandling of evidence some some courts if it's not a specialized court you might have to sit in very close proximity to your abuser yeah. this is not a way to empower someone to then take a stand and in front of everyone retell their story to get justice a lot of the time that is the point when you see your perpetrator walk in to the courthouse you leave 
and yeah. say, I'm done, I can't do this. So yeah, so which, there is a, a campaign at the moment trying to get these specialized courts. There are quite a few of them in the country. Um, the Correctional and Justice Department, you know, they've made a lot of promises of like, yes, you know, we'll revamp such a percent of our courts. I think if you look in 2010, they were supposed to hit a certain target. They were less than half of that target. Um, so so yeah, there's a, there, there's a slow process, but this thing of not re-traumatizing someone so mm. that we can get to the bottom of it and hopefully see justice prevail is yeah. massive. Whether that is in the courthouse, whether that's in your own family, um, yeah. it's, it, 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 it is universal almost. I'm glad you mentioned family because it just makes me think about how many children have gone to their parents and said, so-and-so did this to me. Um, and often when it's an older person or a family member or something like that, and the parents won't believe them because it's almost like too shocking. Uh, maybe this is a nice person. They think they know the person. So they, you know, they, and I, I think that must be so devastating because as an adult, it's bad enough when people don't believe you, mm. but when, it, when you were a child, and it just makes me wonder, um, I think I asked my my husband this the one day and there was a celebrity who had come out as a wife abuser or a wife beater or something and um, there was so much flack in the media about it and people were saying oh she's lying it's nonsense it's not true so the victim was the one that who was the liar and the celebrity was the one that was put on the pedestal. And I still mm. remember saying to my husband at the time, I said, why do you think that people don't want to believe that he is this person? And he said, in his opinion, which I, I felt was really interesting or, or thought was really interesting. He said, in my opinion, it's that when you think something of somebody or you have this opinion about somebody and somebody else comes and says to you, well, actually... He's not who you thought he is, or she's not who you thought she was. You, the person being told, does not want to be wrong. Because you are now changing, trying to change their opinion. Does that make sense? So, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when he said that, I thought, well, yeah, because when children come and say to us, you know, Uncle Benny, Danny, whatever, whatever the name is, did that to me and you think uncle danny is this amazing person he's a great guy yeah he he's a great guy like you that. must be lying you're talking nonsense you want attention mm. as in my opinion children don't lie about stuff like that you 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 have to take it seriously and then investigate it instead of reacting so how would you say to somebody like that whether it's a parent whether it's a family member when somebody does or has experienced the trauma, how is it best to handle that situation instead of immediately knocking the person down and making mm. it out as if it was their fault that that happened to them? Mm, yeah. Um, so I, I want to say it's an acronym, but now I'm confusing my, my language. Um, the word consent, every yes. single letter stands for something. Um, but yeah, so firstly, this idea of consent is, making sure that the under, that the person when you're talking to them whether they've approached you or you've approached them they are fully aware like this is what i'm consenting to this is what i'm agreeing to talk about these are my boundaries you're establishing that so that's your your first point of call so then your first c um 
is about being cognitive. What is this trauma about? Where does this stem from? How would this person perhaps be feeling? And this is where empathy has to mm. start building a little bit. Um, but yeah, but that, that cognizant of why is this person coming to me or why am I going to them and wanting to talk about this in the first place? What, what's that, that end goal? Um, then O, having an open mind. Um, you know, you might hear things that are, as you say, startling. What, Uncle Benny, he would never do that. Mm. Then you have to, there's, there's this thing called um, the suspension of disbelief, where someone lays all the facts in front of you, clear, black and white, or has the testimony in front of you. Yeah. And you still take all of that and say, you know what, I'm going to suspend my disbelief and stick with what I, what I believe. And that's just, I'm going to do that. You have to have mm. an open mind in this thing. Um, N, no shaming. Yeah. If the way that you're asking questions to get more information or to get more, um, get more of an understanding, even in that framing of, you know, what did you do when this happened? Do it the other way around. How did they react? What did they do when this happened? Yeah. How did he do this to you? Not the other way. And if there are any questions, you know, um, but why were you drinking so much that night? Or, um, you know, this is a bad area. Anything that lends itself to the idea that it might be the victim's fault. You have to, that is, you, it's, it's the biggest thing to kill a conversation like that. It's the easiest way to make someone shut down and go, well, I, I, you know, now I'm going to be re-traumatized. I've already felt like this was my fault the whole time. You're making me, you're validating those feelings. We're not doing this anymore. Um, still in the, line of consent uh, support so oftentimes let's say with sexual trauma um someone's autonomy has been robbed of them yeah so you actively giving that back and saying how can i help you can i get you something to drink mm. do you want me to you know can we step outside my office if you're in a workspace what is it? And you have to ask this person, how is it that I can support you in this circle right now to make sure that this process that we're following, you feel helped and you feel supported, but they need to let you know that you can't just assume, oh, well, if I shove a cup of tea in front of you, this is going to make it better. No, find out what they want first. Find out the best ways um, to support them. Then still in the idea of consent, E is for your environment. Um, if the, if the environment that you find yourself in, you know, someone's come to talk to you, maybe you're in your home and it's about uncle so-and-so and uncle so-and-so is in the next room. Mm. This is not a conducive environment to chatting about this. If you're in public and something about being in public is similar to how that person was traumatized, get out of the space. Um, you can also look at the person themselves. Are they, are they feeling jittery? Are they distracted by lights or noises or anything like this? What is the environment that you're putting them in? And is this the best? And then you'll see this thing of um, going back to specialized courts where, surprise, surprise, sitting in a tiny room with no windows and a nasty fluorescent light is a terrible environment for someone that's undergone, yeah. they might be in shock still these specialized courts change those environments so that it is the most calm for this person um yeah next on the on the line of consent is next um just what is that next step 
Once mm. someone has spoken to you about this, what are the resources that you're planning to give them? What are the organizations that you're wanting to partner them with? What kind of action, let's say this is not a long gone years past trauma, this is a trauma that's perhaps still happening. What is the action that needs to be taken? Those pragmatic steps. Mm. And this goes back to giving that, you know, empowering that person and going, cool. Our next step, this, these are your options. If you want to report, if you want to do this, if you want to lay a complaint, um, these are the therapists you can speak to that the next step is, is so, so that someone doesn't feel that I've unpacked all my trauma for you, but what, what was the purpose? What else? Yeah. Yeah. What, what's, what do I get out of this? Now? I, I just relived this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then lastly, on the, on the whole thing of consent is, is transparency. Mm. Um, so if, whether you're the social worker that's interviewing someone for a case you know, you've got to make sure, okay, this is why I'm interviewing you. This is how your words will be used or not be used. Um, I'll quote you here. I'll record you there. Or um, you're chatting to your child about whatever uncle so-and-so did and say, you know, I'm not going to tell daddy or mommy or anything about any of this now. I do need to speak to uncle so-and-so. Whatever that, that transparency mm -hmm. is, that next step is, again, the autonomy, making sure that that person goes, I am fully aware of the next steps, what help mm. is available to me, and I am consenting because there's so much transparency. I can fully consent to yeah. this process of unpacking my trauma. Yeah. And it really is about allowing them to feel safe because, I mean, I can only imagine that, as you say, you know, once you've had a trauma, you feel so vulnerable, so unsafe. And if I could add to your consent, which I love, is that you know, remembering as well that it's not about you. So if you are in a state of shock, because I can imagine not only as a journalist, but a parent, a doctor, a policeman, anybody that deals with anybody who's had trauma, you know, mm -hmm. you get into that state of shock, but it's about realizing that stepping into that moment and going, you know what, this is not about me right now. This is not mm -hmm. about my emotional reaction. This is about this person. How can I support them? How can I help them? How can I help them to feel safe again so that they can get through this? In the whole, in the whole consent thing, that's cognizant. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's being cognizant, not just of what the person um, might be going through, but how you're processing that. So when you catch yourself wanting to ask a question, but the way you're framing that question seems a bit victim shamey you're going yeah. cool i need to be cognizant of that um let's say in your discussion with the loved one um they bring up something that is a massive secondary trauma for you you've yeah. now taken on all of this terrible news or whatever the case is and you find yourself overwhelmed as well you have to be cognizant of that and maybe in the transparency as well you know you can tell the person this is how i've been left feeling by this this is here's my transparency here's you know how i'm dealing with my my own feelings about this but that's not something you need to do um yeah, yeah and and again and unfortunately with the idea of victim blaming um and how we can handle trauma so poorly in a way that it makes things worse mm. if you can this thing of remembering what the point is why would someone want to verbalize the story or the account of something terrible that happened to them. What is the purpose? You know, are we doing this for 
for giggles um, or are we trying to actually help them? Are we, you know, trying to better understand our loved ones and see how we can better support them? What is that thing that underpins this whole conversation? Why are we having this conversation? Because otherwise, if you're not cognizant of that and what the end goal must be, you could very well say to the traumatized person, well, listen, it doesn't help talking to me. I'm just going to make things worse. You have to be that, that cognizant of, of why we're having this discussion. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important that we, you know, we talk about this because this is a very different conversation. But I think it's so important because it brings that awareness to, mm-hmm. as you just said, um, and I've often said this, we were dealing with some sort of trauma. Oh, it was some club we belonged to. And there had been a child who'd been inappropriately handled and spoken to and and they went into that whole victim blaming. And I was like, why on earth do you think this child will speak about something that is so vulnerable? What possible reason or motive do you think he has? You know, do you think mm-hmm. he's, as you're saying, doing it for giggles? Is he doing it for attention? But it wasn't. And, and even if, even if in your prejudiced mind if it, you know somebody is prejudiced right take a breath and go what if they are right what mm. if they are true because you know if that's something that that has happened to them and you don't take notice of it and then something else happens that that is a hundred times worse then think about it gosh you know what I could have put a stop to that I could have made a difference and instead of victim blaming and going you're talking nonsense you don't know what you're talking about I refuse to listen to you Um, and I think that's why for me it's always so important when I say to people it really isn't about you it really is not about you because I think you would feel so much worse you know living with regret is just horrible and knowing that you could have made a difference that's it and it's it's the hindsight as well yeah again going back to being cognitive um being cognitive of the actual statistics, um, mm-hmm. the number of uh, convictions that we get from cases that are reported, whether it's assault, whether it's um, sexual violations, that percentage is, is so small. Um, the amount of women who drop the case completely because they have been re-traumatized is mm-hmm. massive. The amount of people who don't report um, yeah. because of all of this trauma and the, the hurdles that are in front of them is also massive uh as you said now when you look at all of the negative effects that come from speaking about your trauma whatever that is Mm. car accident i was an abusive relationship and you weigh up this thing of you know where where, where's the benefits that they're getting from this versus not um and and realize that yeah no there's there's no child that says, you know what's a fun idea is um, falsely accusing someone of doing something like this. And as you said, even if this person was lying about their trauma, wasn't being truthful, we look at the amount of just, for example, false accusations around sexual violence, Mm. which pales into insignificance when compared with the truths that are being told and the number of truths that are not being believed. Mm. And if you, as you said, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know if how, how we can say worst case scenario, best case scenario, uh, the one scenario, the person that's telling you about their trauma um, wasn't being truthful, um, mm. but you followed that consent guide and you held space for them and, and that was fine. And the other scenario, they are being truthful and you didn't follow that consent thing. Um, 
and they turned out to be telling the truth and the way that you handled that made things so much worse you are going to left feeling like i'm part and parcel yes i wasn't the person that mugged you or assaulted you or raped you but i made that experience a whole lot worse for you by how i didn't consider that my questions and my reaction would re-traumatize you and if we can keep that in mind whether we are the healthcare workers whether we are the policemen uh, whether we're just in our family you know and suddenly we're around the dinner table and someone says yeah yeah," you know casually drops that this horrible thing happened to them um that's your chance to go cool i'm either going to handle this in a way that is not going to make it worse no matter what the truth is or is going to make it worse and you have to be able to live with whatever that outcome is yeah yeah and i think especially when it comes to you know parents and to children um i remember going to the Sedi Bear Clinic in Johannesburg a couple of years ago. Um, and it was all about sexual trauma rehabilitation. So children who had been sexually traumatized. And I was so shocked. I thought I knew it all, not knew it all, but I mean about this, mm. um, you know, sexual trauma happening. But the woman that we saw there said to me, well, we don't just help the children heal who have been violated but we actually help the perpetrators as well and I went oh okay well yeah that, that's a good thing and she said to me but most children who are sexually abused are abused by other children mm. and I was so horrified and I thought wow you, you wouldn't you know you wouldn't think that um but she said that they didn't even know that what they were doing was wrong because obviously they had seen it some, somewhere else and they were just continuing with the cycle. Mm. I was, what I wanted to say about children as well, though, is that I think words are really powerful. And I think a lot of this victim blaming also comes from, you know, you often hear parents or parents of the past in generations and they don't do it on purpose. They don't, they're not thinking about it. But, you know, you, you, tell your parents about a story um, and you say this happened and what do they say oh what did you do wrong mm. and it's, it's not a case of well somebody else did it what did you do wrong to cause that like you were saying earlier on and I think even just those kind of words that we use with people makes people familiar with that it, it, it then becomes a way of life oh what did you do wrong you are to blame so you know even looking at changing our words when our children are little and choosing better words and saying well what happened what happened to you I'm so sorry that happened to you you know those are and I was relaying a story to you earlier on where um, I was expressing something that happened to me to somebody I knew and basically they said to me um, well, you weren't the only one that that happened to. And in that moment, I thought, well, does that make it better? Is that mm. supposed to make me feel better? Is that supposed, how am I supposed to feel about that? Am I supposed to go, oh, okay, so I'm part of a club? Mm. Um, you know, and I, and I think just words, thinking before we speak can make, can make such a difference, can't it? Yeah, and it, so the, the, the person that, you know, here's something like, oh, this, this abuse happened to me. Well, you weren't the only one. They need to ask themselves, cool, how, how is my reaction to this helping this person heal? Yeah. 
what am I how am I contributing to the healing process am I helping them take a step forward or am I taking 10 steps back by doing this um, re-traumatization you were talking about the teddy bear clinic um, there is a foundation in the western cape called the ukuba vimba foundation um, it's run by an attorney and here is a kind of facts on paper example of what happens when we don't handle instances of trauma with the care that they deserve so um it was a sexual assault case two cases at the time it was a three-year-old and a four-year-old from muriasburg which is a tiny little town in the western cape um they have one police station and two churches and that's about it mm -hmm. um it turns out that the pastor a local church reverend had been assaulting these children um the police station itself did not have a specialized family crimes or sexual um, offenses counselor at the point the police sent them to a town about an hour over to just report the incident sent the family and these two children so now they have to find the money to travel all the way to this other police station uh again this the even though they had someone there that's meant to handle these things the way that they've been trained or perhaps it's been too long since they had training the questions that were asked and we talk about um psychological first aid mm -hmm. it's the the words that we use to process some of that trauma just in the psyche whatever the policeman or woman had said to those children did not help um so anyway the case gets laid and the national prosecuting authority says right we'll take it on but um we need some time to investigate and in the process the ukuba vimba foundation went and said well these children need intensive trauma counseling so for a process i think it was over 10 or 12 months they traveled what was like two hours from this tiny town to cape town because there was this was the only place where they could find this kind of trauma counseling um, and that was affordable and accessible as well but again with travel costs so for nearly a year these two children are going through a massive trauma counseling process not provided by the NPA and not provided by the justice system by this foundation um, and then basically what happens is uh, because of their age and because of the significance of the trauma the courts decided to say no well the NPA needs to decide if these children are fit to stand for trial and almost without consulting the foundation that had been helping them throughout the way, without consulting the trauma counselors and finding out what had happened, without consulting the police and finding out how they botched that system of taking the statement in the first place, the NPA said, no, oh, we, we declare these children unfit to stand for trial. So the kind of the message, and he got away with it. Uh, and the message kind of was, well, you know, if you're a kitty diddler, as long as you abuse your your young victims so severely to a point where they are mentally not capable to stand trial, you'll get away with it. That was kind of the underlying message. Um, and there are so you know if you speak to the foundation themselves, they will tell you so many things had to happen to these children in terms of the immediate care, the immediate trauma response, that psychological first aid. Had all of these things happened? Perhaps mm. had they been in a family where it didn't take a couple of weeks saying, 
Reverend so-and-so did this, Reverend so-and-so did, for them to be believed, yeah. um, had they not been re-traumatized so severely throughout the process, they may have been able to be at a point mm. a year or two years later where they were fit, mentally fit to take the stand and hold this man accountable. Yeah. But because people throughout that process uh, had not been cognizant of how they could be re-traumatizing a victim and just mm. assuming that maybe they're telling the truth, we've let two children fall through the cracks of the justice system. Um, And they actually worked, you know, the Ukwimba Foundation worked with the Teddy Bear Clinic as well, um, just in terms of how to support the family. You know, the family wasn't even told directly via the the NPA. um, There was just an email sent to one of the attorneys saying, oh, by the way, we're not proceeding with your case. No you know, taking into account how this might make them feel. It was none of it. But thankfully, we have organizations like these that are willing to go red flag. If we could have handled this better from the moment it was reported, from the moment someone opens their mouth and says, this happened to me. Mm. Just that initial bit, it could have been so much more of a, a smoother process. Yeah. And we could have seen something come out of that not just families being left disappointed yeah yeah and as you say I mean that's a a powerful story of of, as you say where people weren't cognizant and aware Um, and I think that just can be applied to any situation as you say and I think the the message that that I would like to leave people with after this um, interview is very much one of of empathy because even if you don't remember the whole consent and I mean hopefully maybe you can send it to me and I can post it under this video of what what it means um, but even if they don't remember that it's it's that whole thing about developing your empathy and mm. stopping and going how would I feel in this situation how would mm. I like to be treated in this situation because I think that is the easiest way for somebody to actually stop think and then act it's all about how would I want to be handled and dealt with and spoken to and treated right now because at the end of the day I think the world would be so much of a better place not just in these circumstances but in every circumstance if only people take the time to develop their empathy um so yeah I mean thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts and your (laughs) advice and ideas because I just think it's it's something people don't talk about and they don't even think about it you don't think oh gosh what am I going to you know obviously as a counselor I would think about that but I don't even think about telling other people well this is how you should handle it so you've really brought a lot of value to this conversation you know aside from your profession as well and or my profession in our daily lives we were not trained to prepare to handle trauma um, yeah. even remembering this consent thing is it's 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 a tricky thing as well and even myself I get it wrong sometimes um, but I think as you you know the, the 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 idea of empathy but lastly you you have to look at the bigger picture and say at the end of the story at the last chapter do, do I want my name to be down as someone that helped in this healing process or sure. someone that hindered it yeah and uh-huh. what can I do to, to be that person for this loved one that's approaching me or I've approached them. If you can have the idea of how you want your role in this whole trauma process clearly in your mind and you're guided by that and guided by the empathy, 
there's very little that um, you can do wrong if you're steadfast with that. I love that. Do I want to be somebody who helped or somebody who hindered? Thank you so much for joining us today. So I, I, so I really appreciate your time um, and all your wise words. And I think it's really going to help people tremendously. And if you've been affected by trauma in your life and you haven't been able to find somebody to talk to or possibly you've had a bad experience, I want you to know that there are a lot of good people out there that will help you to deal with your trauma. Don't suppress it. Don't hide from it. Because at the end of the day, your life will be so much better if you get the help that you deserve. So please tune in next time. And thank you for watching. And just remember that you are not alone. Whatever you are going through, you are not alone. There is help out there. And if you're looking for more resources or for contact numbers or anything, please make sure that you go to our website. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time to hear more about how you can be more EQ.